Teigen. And I'm Eric. This is season two of the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers in the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. We would like to thank all of our patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to proweaverpod.com support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. We have started to get transcripts put together for episodes starting at the beginning. We have done a few so far, and if you are a member of the website, you have access to the transcripts. You just have to log in. We have also started a Discord server for our listeners to gather and communicate. If you would like to connect with the community, click the link in the show notes or go to professionalweaversociety.org and click the join the discord link to let us know you would like to join and we will send you an invite this week we are speaking with john paul morabito of chicago illinois john paul is a transdisciplinary weaver who engages the medium of tapestry reimagined in the digital age their work outputs woven forms moving images and relational actions to imagine queer grace their work has been exhibited internationally including, but not limited to, the Zhejiang Art Museum in China, Dorsky Gallery Curatorial Projects in New York, and the Nerman Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas. They also have work in collections like the Textile Resource Center at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. They have presented papers at the College Art Association Conference and the Textile Society of America Symposium, published essays with Art China, the China Academy of Art Textile Reader 2, and the Journal of Textile Design Research and Practice. Morabito holds a BFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art and an MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where they currently serve on the faculty as an assistant professor, adjunct of fiber and material studies. We hope you enjoy our conversation with John Paul as we cover how they discovered weaving early in their life queer identity and creation through textiles, and the future of weaving and more. I started weaving in high school. Um, I had, I, I like to refer to him as my, my hippie witch art teacher that brought in a couple of table looms and I was, um, the, the art spaces in in the high school that I was attending were one of the few spaces where I kind of felt safe to exist. Yeah. Um, you know, being, being queer in the nineties wasn't fun. Um, so, um, so those were the spaces where I, I found myself and she had uh, taken a number of us into, um, into uh, the creative space and brought in some small table looms and, you know, I wanted to learn how to do it and started and it's like, oh, oh, this, this is, this is weave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, which I think a lot of people, the first time they weave, um, have that, like either this is the most insufferable, god awful process ever, or it like something clicks and um, a lot of who you are happens. So 
she initially trained me in weaving, we were working on a couple of floor looms. And then when I graduated high school, she gave me a 1965 copy of Ani Elber's On Weaving, oh, which um, I, uh, at that age, read cover to cover several times, not realizing how priceless it was. So um, I now stick to reading the digital version of the new copy that I have. Um, yeah. But so I read, I read that. Um, my first year in art school, you know, art school, you're doing that freshman year um, kind of art making boot camp, and I really wanted to weave, so I was reading through a lot of that and um, figuring out how to build looms and how to create interlacements, and then from there, just kind of kept on going. But it was like once I started, it was all I wanted to do. Um, I, I'm really interested in how expansiveness can come through this hyper focus which I think is kind of a hallmark of weeping a lot of people have really broad ways of working with women. So, yeah yeah that's kind of that's what really attracted me to weaving too was there was there was so much like it wasn't just this is a plain weave you go up and down through the threads and this is what weaving is it's like it just opened up this whole world of expression to me in a way that I hadn't felt comfortable doing that before. So I totally can get what you're saying because it's just, it opened up a whole new opportunity. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, years ago when we were all, well, I, when many of us were training, I want to say, is that the, there was this identity crisis within the discipline and within the field because it could be anything. So therefore was it nothing? And, Nows are entering into this moment where interdisciplinarity and postdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity are being embraced. Like that's what weaving does naturally. Like as a weaver, you're an architect, you're a painter, you're a coder. Um, and I think a lot of people also have this way of working where it's like maybe you do a design project and maybe you do an art project and maybe you do something that's like just really, really just about the technical side of things. And like all of that is possible within this one mode of making. Um, yeah, and I mean it's not unique to weaving, but I think it is um, not a lot of modes of making offer that capacity to like do the same thing emphatically, but also do all of these vastly different activities that mean vastly different things, which is also just like really exciting. Yeah. So when you are creating your work, is it like do you feel that you are? Con- connected to the weaving that you are a weaver and you are creating this woven piece or is weaving just the medium at which to express what you're looking for like does it just so happen to coincide with this is the way that best works for what I'm trying to get across so I I think it's a little bit of both um I am I'm very concept driven in the work that I'm doing and like I don't feel like I'm making weaving about weaving. Um, I feel like I'm making work that's using weaving to articulate other kinds of ideas. But um, so part of it is that's the vocabulary that I use. That's, that's what I know. That's the means through which I express myself. That's my language. But at the same time, I'm also really interested in that process and what it can do because that's the language that I speak. So I feel like it's like they're interrelated with one another. But again, I'm not being like, well, this is about what weaving can do. It utilizes that to bear witness to certain kinds of humanity and create meaning that um, that talks about something beyond the moon. 
which I feel like is an important thing for me to do as an artist, to not just be making work about the process, but to utilize the process to talk about what it means to be human in this particular time. Yeah. And that's a really, that's a really good point because a lot of what being human is having that kind of tactile connection to it. Like we have that want to be able to feel things and wrap ourselves around them. And the fact that you are taking like religious iconography or these textures that are inherently all around us, like the black and white pieces that looked like, I think, I can't remember what you called them, Frada? Froda? Frottage. Frottage. There we go. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but um, the fact that they look like charcoal rubbings or something that you would do as a kid, like taking a crayon and taking rubbings over different textures and just incorporating some of the colors, like you're taking all of these human elements that we can all relate to and making it into a tactile piece. I think that's a really interesting connection. It's, I mean, with that work, it's um, that's an that's an interesting body of work because those those are actually like they are rubbings okay. um, that then go through this process of translation. So, um, uh, rubbing is a really interesting way of making an image because it's the least authorial and the most tactile way that you can make a drawing. Like, you don't okay, you can move your hand in different ways, but ultimately the image is being produced through what lies beneath it. So it's, um, in art historical terms, there's this idea about like representation and realization, representation being like, I sit and I draw the thing and I interpret it and realization being like the mark is made by touching, um, where it's it's about the body. Um, so a rubbing is the most, like it's a visual form, but it's so much about the body. And that's why I love them so much. But yeah. the um, that body of work is, I had a series of like, failed weavings that I've done. And, you know, we all have that stockpile of just like the stuff that no one shall see. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, <laughs> all of us. And this is something I tell my students all the time because they're so afraid to fail when they first start. It's like, eh, that's how you, that's how you get to the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but I have all this pile of stuff and like most artists, I don't throw away things I hoard in the most organized, least dust collecting way that I can find. Um, but I started just making rubbings of those weavings. Okay. And I, I'm really interested in this cannibalistic process or this self-cannibalistic process where it's almost like a feedback loop where you make one thing, you make another thing and that thing then feeds into the next and it's, it's a self-sustained loop. So the rubbings are um, made from these textiles that I'd woven by hand. Then they get scanned and digitized and move through a process onto a digital jacquard loom and then they're woven by hand. Um, But actually like those textiles themselves, like yeah, they're making an object, but it's almost as flat as a drawing. Like it's, the yarns are very thin and smooth. So it's a very optical kind of weaving. And I feel like within that work, the points in which it defies that are is like when the threads spit out of the edges or whatnot. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very, they're very, very, very smooth. And, oh, cool. Oh, that's really interesting. Cause that was going to be kind of leading to, into my next questions was how do you create, like, what is your process of design and what is, or rather your process of creation to these pieces like are you starting with 
very analog creation and then digitizing it and translating it to a computerized loom or a jacquard loom. I'm very curious about the artistic process that you go through. Um, sure. You know, I think I'm a little funny because I, um, while I'm like so devoted to this practice of weaving, I also like, jump around and do very different things um, depending upon the project. So um, I was using the digital jacquards for the past 10 years almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, but for each of those projects, it was like I'd have an idea and then I just work through it. And I tend to work in series until I get like exhausted with an idea and then move on to another thing. Um, but for me, it's really important to just find space to be intuitive and improvisational and like not plan. Like weaving is very planned. You can't, you can't not plan at all, but trying to find space where I can be very free and improvisational and move towards something unpredictable. Um, so the, with a lot of the tapestries that I've been weaving on the jacquards, um, I developed a style of interlacement that allows me to be very improvisational and produce an image that certainly recalls what it came from. I mean, that's part of the point, but it also deviates from that and becomes something totally different through the mixture of color, um, different kind of textural actions happening. And so then it becomes, it becomes, a, it becomes something that can't be made twice. And like with, when you're weaving on very often digital tools in a contemporary art space, there's this question of infinite reproducibility. And that that question of reproducibility is what's used to devalue uh, modes of making like weaving, like printing, like photography. And so finding ways to assert that kind of like singular humanity into the object is really interesting. and you know, I, I even do that with like the floor of the room when I I'll I work with a structure or with a construction, but beyond that, like I'm the I'm about to start threading my loom in the next couple of days and I don't have a I know the structure I'm using, but it's I'll I'll plan it and thread it kind of um, improvisationally so that the layout of pattern is based upon what I'm doing and that's, okay. that's kind of what I do a lot of like Create, create structures and then I work within them so that I'm not like following a plan. Like yeah. Plan. So you're, you're more or less kind of painting with the structures. Like you're taking the opportunity to, you understand the structures enough that you can break the rules within them. So you can push the boundaries, you can highlight, bring back, do what you need to do and still play with the colors and, highlight all that stuff i know one of the pieces that i was looking at the other day from the religious icons that you had like the madonnas and child mm-hmm. like to see like to zoom in close and see like the different structures pop up and how they relate to the piece itself like some of them almost look like halos around the heads and then the colors for like the pinks at the bellies like it's mm-hmm. so it it is very intuitive and you can see the play within that, which is really exciting. Totally. I mean, I think that's like, that's when I'm having the most fun. Well, I, actually most of the time I'm fighting with the work and that's when the work is the best because I'm actively engaged in it. Yeah. It's, um, we'll call it play. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're all familiar with that state of making where it's just like 
frustration the whole time, but then it's <gasps> done and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yes. it becomes worth it at the end when you see it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Even even in production weaving, I get in those modes where I'm just like, I'm so sick of seeing this structure. I'm so sick of what I'm weaving. Like this is awful. And then as soon as it gets off the loom and I finish it, I'm like, oh, this was worth it. Mm-hmm. Like now it makes sense. It all comes together. Yeah. Totally. Totally. I mean, I get into the thing where making singular objects is very different than production and not like it's changing the whole time right. um, rather than kind of trying to, trying to make, trying to make, and uh, are you, what kind of lens do you use? I use AVLs mainly. Yeah, they, when I was a designer, I was working on one of those. They, they like to make mistakes, which is not something you want in uh, production cloth, I would assume. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, that's a, that's a, I'm sure that's an interesting problem to have to deal with left and right. But I find like when I'm weaving something, particularly on the jacquards, the frustrating part is when I think it's ugly the whole time. And I'm like constantly trying to push it out of the stage of like um, visual unrest. And ultimately when it comes off of him, because I've been so actively trying to compose it into something that it actually is a stronger image in the end because I'm, present with the work and yeah. I think regardless that's something that's true across like being present versus like just going through the motions is a really different it produces something very different mm-hmm. yeah absolutely now something that I've noticed from your Instagram and going through your website and reading your artist statement you bring up a lot about bringing your the queer identity to the forefront like really essentially queering textiles or like creating a queer identity within textiles. So I'm really interested to hear about what kind of that journey has been like to start doing that. And then what does that end up being to you? Like, how do you see that being presented to the world? Like I, I, I'm a bisexual woman. I'm very comfortable in that I, that identity and I identify with the queer culture. And so I'm really curious about how you take your identity and bring it into your textile work. So when it, the best way for me to answer that question is to pardon, I'm an academic, so I'm going to throw theory at you. Okay. Um, <laughs> So uh, a few years ago, actually a few years, uh, about a year ago, I was at a lecture um, like right before the world shut down and COVID came along, actually. Um, so Ty Smith, the scholar who wrote Bauhaus Weaving Theory, um, she had come to the School of Art Institute where I teach and lectured at the Department of Fiber Material Studies. And she was speaking on this idea of methodology um, and talking about, you know, how, how we examine and how we think through things. And she brought up this idea about the textile being a tangent. Um, and this idea of textiles being adjacent to, but outside of art, but then also as being a tangent of art, where it kind of like touches, but doesn't intersect. So okay. it's off on its own path. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, 
that's what it's like being queer. Like, that's like the queerest, like that's what queer positionality is. So when looking at textiles through that lens, um, I can start to think about it as a queer medium and think about like the way in which textiles, like even now in this moment, they're like fetishistically part of the art world, but it has to be something else. Like you can, you can, have, a, you can have a weaving in contemporary art if it's a painting. It can't be there on its own terms. Right. Or very rarely it's there on its own terms. And so that that leads to a kind of adjacency where it's it's there, but it's kind of on liminal, liminally there or marginally there, or just on the outside of it. So I feel like that provides uh, that provides a that provides weaving to be this kind of medium that is already inherently queer. And it can be looked at through many different lenses, but I'm looking at it through a queer lens. And so I then am able to think about embodiment and culture and politics and visuality through a lens that is already kind of tangential to something else. And I think that's that's particularly queer. There's also a material instability to textiles, right? Like they're floppy, they're droopy, they're bodily. Like all that stuff is really can be argued as being very, very queer. Right. Um, one of the reasons that like, I like to use the term tapestry because tapestry is like, of all art forms, nothing has had the biggest, the bigger fall from grace. You know, you think about the Renaissance tapestries and the tapestries of the Middle Ages and like, I mean, to use that term is to invoke that history. And so you go from being like the highest form, the form that was worth more than a painting to not shortly thereafter, this form that's associated with like decadence and aristocracy and meaningless and right. just gets totally trod down upon. And it's having a resurgence, but still it's like all of this history goes along with it. And so I think about that as kind of a, a way of making queer meaning, like thinking about it through a camp concept of like, all right, to be weaving these tapestries is really an act of kind of like campy poor taste. They are already devalued. And then to exalt what has been marginalized is a sensibility that is very queer. Um, so I think about it a lot through those kinds of lenses. And within my work, I'm not interested in being explicit. I'm interested more in like the implicit. Um, okay. So some like it's, it's queer and it cannot possibly be anything other than that. Like it is queer, I'm making queer work, but am I necessarily making work about queerness? No, I'm making work about God or about embodiment or about um, disease. And that's all being filtered through queer perspective and queer sensibility. Um, and textiles allow a lot for that to happen. So like the, um, the Fritage tapestries that we talked about earlier, like that yeah. work, is very much about kind of queer erotics that's folded into imagery. So I think this will bring up a good transition to what kind of equipment do you use? Like what tools are you using to create your work? Sure. Um, I've been, I've been using many different kinds of looms depending upon what I have access to and what I am, um, what I'm interested in. So when um, so I, when I came to Chicago um, to go to graduate school, I had been making art in my own studio, but I was also working for the designer Suzanne Tick as okay. um, her studio weaver. 
and I'd been working on Dobby looms like constantly, and I mean nothing, nothing production wise, like you know doing a, a sixteen shaft sleigh and like making up interlacements for um, for a variety of different kind of architectural applications, and a lot of graduate school was about erasing that. So I worked on Dobby looms primarily in, in graduate school. Most of what I did was Dobby weaving. Okay. Um, and then uh, because of my academic appointment, I had access to a lot of digital equipment. So at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, we have three digital jackards in the fiber department. Um, yeah, we, we, have a, uh, <laughs> uh, we have the most comprehensive weaving facilities in the country. Like, I feel very confident in saying that we've got 40 floor looms three digital jackards, like it is a very, we're one of the biggest art schools in the country and our right. department is probably the size of an entire art program at another university. So there's a, there's a, a presence of scale, but so we have three digital jackards, one very wide, really fantastic one that I've been making work on for a number of years. And so through, through my position at the school, I've been um, over the summers and over the winters, weave a ton and then like kind of go through it and edit it and see what was working what was not. Um, and it worked that way for nearly 10 years. And then, you know, COVID happened and uh, the summer weaving that I would have been doing um, was you know, kind of shut into my, into my studio in my, um, in my home. And so I moved back to working on the floor room. Um, but it really depends on the project and what I have access to. Like, I don't feel, yeah. I used to be very much like, okay, I need to get my own digital jack card and that's what I'm going to do. And that's, you know, that's going to be my, you know, the next 30, 40 years of my life will just be using that tool. And, you know, having, having that access interrupted and having to refigure out how I'm approaching the practice and how I'm approaching making um, just reminded me that it, I can, the process of weaving is really important, but also I can do it on different tools. Um, I'm actually trying to figure out how to how to think about doing smaller drawing like things on um, on backstrap looms. Oh. I'm teaching a backstrap loom and introducing a backstrap weaving curriculum at the school, which presents a whole host of political questions that we have to ask about, like what does it mean to be teaching indigenous weaving within a Western art school? So there, right. there are some larger questions of ethics that need to come up, but because I'm doing that, I'm also thinking about how this might be a more mobile autonomous mode of making for my own practice. So I'm not married to a single type of equipment. I'm married to like the process of weaving and what it means politically in the world, but different, different tools do different things. Yeah. And by moving to different kinds of equipment, I'm able to do very, very different things. Like the material freedom that you get when you move away from digital tools is really exciting. Like I have piles of like very strange things that I'm like, I could actually weave with you. Uh, if I stop using things that are imprinting themselves on the process. So like, as you know, like our looms are, they're there with us and they have as much of a voice as we do. Yeah. Uh, That's cool. I, that actually makes me feel a lot better about the number of looms that I have because it really, it really is like you, the, what you want to create depends on what loom you have access to or what loom mm -hmm. 
decides to be working that day or something like that. It's very, I feel comforted with the fact that I have 32 looms mm. and there's a reason for all of them. <laughs> That's oh. an impressive array of looms. <laughs> well, I mean, you have a business, so that doesn't yeah. make a little that's a lot of looms. Some of them are duplicates of themselves, but yeah. for the most okay. part, they're all different, different looms, different makes, just because I, I also love the story of looms, like where they come from, who used them before, what were they used before? Like we have this one Maycomber floor loom that's about 48 inches wide. And there are all these ridges along the back and the front beam because it was used as a rug loom. And the uh -huh. fact, and the fact that I can still feel those ridges and my own threads are wearing them in. It's like, it's really exciting to see that because I'm just adding to the history of this piece of equipment. Mm. Totally. Totally. Well, and when you're, when we're like deciding what, to like planning projects coming up and deciding what we're going to do on what loom, you know, you really do think about like, well, what loom can actually best handle this? Yeah. Job? You know, and then it's like, well, if there's a few that need one loom, then we don't push through doing it on another loom. We just wait until that loom's free. Yeah. And we sort of mm -hmm. honor the, what the looms want to do yeah. to some degree. Yeah. I love that. It's, um, they're like collaborators, you know, it's not yeah. like, um, it's, I, I like to think of weaving as this anti-heroic way of making. So, I mean, you think of like the, the genius painter going into their, going into their studio with their blank canvas and gesturing all over it to, to like shout their heroic genius. And with weaving, it's like, no, you have to listen to the loom and, yeah. think through the loom um but yeah and different looms do different things like not every not every piece of equipment is going to lend itself to one thing or another mm. like I, I you know i work with um, a counter marsh loom and they are great for a lot of things but like you know pickup weaving not so great <laughs> correct so <laughs> you know, there's um and and so because of that like there's different it lends itself to different things. So I think of doing different things with that equipment, um, which I find to be really beautiful. It's like, there is this, this dialogue, this collaboration, this cooperation that like politically and socially and meaningfully, like the work emerges out of that. It's not just like my brilliant vision that brings things into being. It's right. connected to something that is, that's based on like matter and physics and just, like acknowledging that there's some perspective other than my own that has to come into the process, which mm -hmm. I really, really love. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy the constraints of what you can do. Mm. Because then, then you're creative within those constraints. Yeah. You can really push the boundaries of what right. can happen. The tighter my rules, the more creative I feel, <laughs> you know? So if I only have like a tiny little bit of wiggle room, I feel like I can get way more creative and make way better work that way. Totally, totally. I mean, that's that's Annie Albers' whole philosophy that she puts forward is like limitation is actually really inspiring 
Mm. You're not looking at a blank sheet of paper. You already have some constraints and you have to work within them. And then that yields for, I mean, it's like, that's, that's weaving, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Work within limitations to, to create something. Yep. Um, I just have a quick question about the uh, jacquard that you said is wide and you really like. What kind of jacquard is that and how wide is it? So um, at the school, we have TC2s and um, we thought about getting some other models and maybe that'll change down the line. But pedagogically, it was just like that's going to be way too confusing for the students to learn how to deal with mm-hmm. another piece of finicky technological equipment that um but we use the tc2 which is the thread controller um and those are made by out of norway they're produced by digital weaving norway they were developed and designed by vivica vetsby i think most universities are using those looms um interesting like like they're a hack of the jacquard um so it's a way of making the jacquard more accessible um, and enabling people to work with this technology in a way that is, um, does not require you to spend, you know, a million dollars or a hundred grand or however much a a massive industrial jacquard would cost. So it has really opened up this, um, this technology to artists and smaller design studios and whatnot. Um, but they, uh, the way they work is they have these modules, so they're, they're sized in, um, I think it's 220 thread modules, if I'm remembering correctly. So, um, and you can build the loom out up to four modules wide and many, many modules deep, and that's how you get your end count. So we have a couple that are two wide by four deep, and we have one that's three wide by four deep, which leads to a weaving width of about 44 inches wide, okay. which is a pretty decent a decent width. I mean, it's not it's not gargantuan, but for a hand weaver, you also stand while you weave. So for a hand weaver that's standing, um, going much wider than forty four inches might be a, a bit a bit much. Um, and again, we're also working with students who are learning to weave for the first time. That's a whole. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good sized textile, right? Yeah, I'm just curious because I'm I'm currently researching them like in industrial applications and stuff. And um, I'm always, I'm trying to decide how industrial we want to go. Yeah. Like how far away from hand weaving? Are we just going to go all in and we're going to set it up and it's just going to run itself? Or are we, do we still want to maintain some element of the hand weaving? I mean, even with, I worked in industry for a while. So I would say that like you can have, artisanal craft and industrial looms like it's Mm. still a technology like it's all technology all of it all like even the simplest of looms is a piece of technology um the floor loom is that is incredibly more automated than a backstrap loom for example Mm -hmm. which is incredibly more automated than just picking threads with your fingers Mm -hmm. so you know there the hand is always present like if you go to a factory they're constantly physically with the work. It's just about what the scale of production is. Like in Chicago, we have um, the weaving mill here, and you know that is that is an artisan mill. Like Emily is working with all of this really massive equipment, but it's not industry scale. Like she's not doing 
She's not doing thousand yard runs. She mm. probably can with that equipment, but she's doing things that are like new warps are going on all the time and it's really specialized and it's really, it's really craft. It's just using industrial equipment, which I think is really fascinating and wonderful that such a perspective is being put forward. Because like, I remember being in industry where it's like, these are the warp colors and these are the rough colors that you've available to you. You can't, like if you're going to work with Dobbies, you don't change the threading. The threading is always going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like it's, it's, I feel like you could do craft just, you know, it's, it's about being custom and individual and unique, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I like that perspective a lot because that's always the battle that I'm having is at what point am I not doing craft anymore? At what point am I just doing production and being industrialized? And I think to put, cause we, we also work part time at a spinning mill. So I, I run one of the spinning frames and I'm constantly, my hands are always involved. I'm mm-hmm. touching all of the yarn and I set it up each and every time. And we do like small runs, big run, like the smallest run run we'll do is like 10 pounds and the biggest we'll do is like 180. And the fact that my hand is involved in the whole process and that there's other team members that are involved, mm-hmm. it's a really an artisanal yarn Yeah, because people are all involved in the whole process the entire time. Well, it's, it's, I feel like it's very much about attention, like you know, having worked in industry and I worked in different scales of industry and some, you know, with Suzanne Tech and Nolan and all of that, like that was very attentive and things were done with, all right, it, it's not, I think you can argue that it was craft, um, certainly um, because it was about skill and attention and um, care. And it wasn't just about, I mean, they're, they're companies, they're making profit. That's what they're, so that they can keep their doors open. But um, it wasn't just about producing a bunch of stuff just to produce it. So it's like, like mass market is a bit different. Right. Um, but it, it, no matter, even at the scale of where people are doing like 2000 yards a day, their body is still there. Like there's this false concept where we think of like industry and bodies as being separate. And it's just about more about like how the bodies are in the space. But have you ever been to like a, a big like mill, like a weaving mill? I haven't been to a weaving mill, but I've seen videos and like seen people like the people are there watching the looms and like going yeah. from loom to loom. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, and then it's just about like the autonomy of that process. Like right. are people only using these like cookie cutter things that exist because it's going to be cheaper to produce them? Or are they researching to develop new kinds of textiles? Are they trying to create new yarns? Um, are they are they pushing the envelope? Or are they taking what other people have already done and regurgitating that to make a profit? And I feel like like those are really important distinctions to make. You know, mm-hmm. and how is the body being used in the factory? Are they like are their skills being appreciated? And I've seen factories where they are, or are they just automatons that are there to man a machine right Hmm. oh industry oh industry yes yeah interesting go ahead oh yeah i just i want to uh i'm just curious about a couple things about the teaching side 
Um, <laughs> in your uh, experience, are you... Uh, we've talked to a few weaving teachers in the past, like both on the podcast and off, and it's always interesting to hear, um, are you more of, uh, do you like teach more skills in early in weaving or are you more focused on like the idea and like come up with something and we'll figure out how to execute it? So, and how do you feel that the way you teach impacts like the long term of someone sticking with weaving or uh, being interested in it longer than just taking a, a cool weaving class during college? So yes and yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a I, hard question to answer. Well, I, I mean, I think, um, I, I think having a foundation is really important. And I also think it depends upon where different people are teaching and like what, what the student population is. Mm -hmm. um, I, as I've been progressing, I mostly teach advanced students and graduate students. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started teaching, it was more early on in their undergraduate studies. So there is a shift in what the needs are at that particular moment in time. I mean, I'm a believer that like, I'm also, I'm at an art school that's devoted to interdisciplinary art practice and students coming in to make art um, and not towards, I mean, even, there are students that are interested in design and industrial application or craft application, but that's not the, that's not the teaching philosophy of the institution and that's not the student, most of the students that I'm getting. So um, that certainly lends itself one way. And I, there are folks at other institutions who have to teach towards student interest. Uh, that's that's part of what being a teacher is. I really believe in a marriage of like the skill or the craft or the, the material knowledge and like the conceptual, what does it mean? Um, and as you move through your career as a maker, large, greater understandings will come to you in both of those categories. What's important for me is that the students consider what they're doing and what it means in the world and okay. whether or not they continue to weave, they will, un they will think about what this practice means politically and socially. And I think that's really important to the longevity of the field. Now, I mean, I believe in a depth of technical knowledge, but not everyone at like, not every student that's coming in is going to have the patience to acquire that. Some of them will, and we foster that and work with that. Um, I mean, I have a very rigorous technical way that I teach where like, we start with really thin threads, so they're not afraid of it. Um, so their first warp is a hand-dyed warp that's using you know, fine threads so that it's normal to them. They're not afraid of it by the time that they're you know, finishing their weaving studies. They, like, oftentimes they study with me, like, oh, we can use thick thread, yes. Yes, you can. It exists. Um, but that's, I think that's just something that um, presents a rigor almost immediately. And, you know, I do believe in showing a broad range of potential um, technical vocabularies. But ultimately, the more important question is, what does it mean in the world? How is what you are doing affecting the world beyond you? Um, and I think this is the, this is 
the responsibility of all who are making art is to think about how what you are doing is going to create meaning for the public. Mm. And there are many different kinds of publics that you might be introducing that into, but like I, that's what I believe and that's what I try to impress on my students that like what we are doing is not neutral. What we are doing fits into a social context and a political context. And when it comes to weaving, like weaving is a really political thing to do. Like, yeah. why do I get to call myself an artist? Why do you all get to call yourselves artists? Um, when somebody else in another part of the world is like a, an anonymous laborer or a hobbyist or like, these are really important things to consider. So that's a major conversation that I have within my classes, within all of them. You know, statistically, like most of my students are not going to continue being, being weavers. Most of them aren't going to continue being artists. Like that's, we know that, we know that's what happens. Mm -hmm. But if they have an understanding of what this means politically and conceptually and socially, even if they leave the field and move into maybe administrative roles or curatorial roles or historical roles, they understand the language and they understand what it means positionally and aesthetically and ideologically. And I feel like that's hugely important. I mean, yeah. some of the biggest theorists in our field started out as artists. And there's a reason for that because they can speak our language. You know, people like Jenny Sorkin and Shannon Stratton and Lisa Feinbaum. Like these are people who, who have a practice that's rooted in making mm -hmm. or like began as makers and then moved into these, these roles as theorists. And that's really important, I think. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. Yeah, gentle, sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. No, that was that really helpful. Leads me to a question of given all of that and what you see in your classrooms, are you hopeful for the future of weaving? I want to be optimistic and like, yes, ultimately, yes. Um, I think we're at a very tricky stage within the, within the field of textiles, within the field of weaving and within the field of art education in general. So like we're mm -hmm. at a tricky stage, which is where some of my resident uh, reticence is coming from. But ultimately, yes, I, I am optimistic. I think we are at a stage where we need to carve new pathways and figure out new ways of doing what we have been doing the same way for a very, very long time. Um, in the past five or 10 years, we've seen a number of fiber programs closed down. Yeah. Uh, mm. That's certainly going to shift what we do in the field. And mind you, I'm coming from a contemporary art perspective. So that's, there's other, there's other interpretations of other fields that would be different than mine. But looking at, the, looking at the field of contemporary art, I see a lot of visibility for weaving. I mean, it's still marginal. It's still um, kind of on the outskirts, but it has a lot more visibility. And that's very different than what it was like when I was coming up and it was basically like, even in a fiber department, it was like this like rejected thing in the corner. Um, you know, and I mean, it's not like we were dismissed by our, our uh, faculty, but like the, the interest among students wasn't there. And there's a huge interest of that happening right now. You know, we, we are weaving courses fill like that, like they're really rapidly filling. So I see the future happening, but we also just have to start thinking of ways in which to communicate what we do more broadly, um, yeah. start learning to speak the language of the painters and so forth. And how do we think through our 
how do we think through our discipline utilizing their language so that it can be understood, but not treated as a how-to, but just a, as a way of enabling people to understand what it is that we do. Um, and, you know, there are, there are some generational things that are going on, like where the field also has a lot of really heavy duty conservative impulses within it that have to now contend with the broader, more inclusive, more accessible ways in which we're approaching the field and approaching being public with things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, yes, ultimately yes, but I think there's a lot of just like figuring out, like if we have vanishing university weaving programs, how do we address that? Do we begin new ones within, uh, within other programs? Do we build up those that have been existing? You know, and higher education after, after COVID is uh, going to be a, going to be interesting to see what happens, shall we mm. say. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think we're at a moment of change and that's scary and great. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, after talking to so many teachers and um, people about vanishing like even small schools that taught like where that was just like a little weaving school and they had classes that ran mostly year round and stuff like that. Um, I just find it so incredible that the state university of New York still even funds a weaving program. Yes. You know that what I mean? I was one of five people in my department when I graduated mm-hmm. with my degree. I went to uh, SUNY Buffalo state okay and it's just a very small department it's lively we the intro classes are always full but once you get to the advanced levels where people want to actually focus on it it just dwindles down to nothing but the people that have come out of that department are still within their fields like it's awesome it they're still passionate about what they do and are doing great things yeah and I think for some of you guys that, you know, were in your sort of uh, class there, mm-hmm. um, a year ahead or behind you or whatever, the nice thing was that you were able to explore the things you wanted to as soon as you got out of those intro classes. So you jumped into weaving, Hillary got into like more embroidery work, you know, different people got into their things. Yeah. And really were allowed to explore mm-hmm. and learn and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that actually helped all of you guys. Yeah. In in terms of like building a foundation to go forward and um like make awesome shit. <laughs> basically. You know? Yeah. There's a lot of freedom in smaller state schools like in these in these programs where it's like one faculty doing everything. Right. And, you know, just a handful of students. There's a lot of freedom in that kind of a space. Um, and hopefully that does continue. Um, I know from, from speaking to colleagues and just looking at the landscape in general, what you see is a lot of, like a lot of these programs stay open as long as there is a faculty member there. And then as soon as the mm. person retires, they don't replace that line they shutter the program. Um, right. I mean, weaving is an expensive thing to teach. For, 
from like the perspective of a tuition-driven institution, there's this piece of real estate that you have that one student occupies for the mm -hmm. whole entire time. And that's just like, from an administrator standpoint, I'm sure they're like, what in the, like this room can only be used by this many, what are you talking about? Right. Um, and that's just something that we all have to figure, you know, figure our way around. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So, oh, yeah. the academic world. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I always, I, I always have like a little pipe dream that I just keep on my shelf that someday I'll go get an MFA, but it will just sit there until I'm ready. I'm not worried about it. But, We're getting it now with this podcast. I mean, we are. Yeah. We are the the people that we've talked to through this podcast have totally opened my eyes and have changed my perspectives about weaving and how I relate to it. Mm -hmm. And it generally it's shifted me from thinking that I'm a machine that just creates work to I'm a human being that loves what they do. And people can see the passion in the textiles, mm. which kind of brings me to, how do you perceive the value of textiles like either in an academic institution or in the contemporary art world how do you see it being connected with like are people just shoving it off to the side like oh that's cute you do this thing or is it becoming more of a serious language that people are starting to discuss through oh that's a really good question thank you for asking that um <laughs> So, I, the, so what I'm what I'm hearing is this, this question about like value or positionality or hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's not something that's gone away. Like it's different than it was when I was training, where it was just like what we were doing in fiber departments was really amazing and critical and theoretical and social and groundbreaking, but it was also not leaving that space because it, for, you know, racist, sexist, uh, homophobic and transphobic reasons, um, people weren't paying attention to what was happening in fiber departments. So, um, and that, that persists, but you're seeing more interest. So mm -hmm. like the, what I'm seeing is a lot of people still don't understand the language. They still don't understand how to think through this critically, conceptually, socially, and they're learning, but they don't understand it. And, you know, we at the, at the School Theater Institute, we're one of the only universities to offer, like through their history program, um, courses on the history of this. And it's, right. it's like one course that was taught by our chair. And since she's chair, it's not being taught anymore. She doesn't have time for that. Um, so ultimately what ends up happening is this like responsibility, and this is true across the board in institutions, this responsibility of people teaching um, in fiber courses to teach art history, because it's literally not being taught, like literally not being taught in art history, which is where it is supposed to be taught. Um, right. So that I think speaks to the value. I, think things are shifting and things are changing. More and more students are getting very invested in taking courses and, and thinking of things seriously. But I mean, they talk about how, uh, they will talk about things being dismissive sometimes. And a lot of it depends on who, who it is that is responding to the work that way. Um, 
but you know, it's weaving and textiles have greater visibility than they ever have. But are they on the same tier as painting? No. Will they ever be? Probably not. And that's probably a good thing. It's a different means of working. Um, and by not being in that kind of hallowed role, we're able to access more social and democratic and collective modes of, of thinking and making and working um, that you know are not as accessible to someone who's working through anything. But I think it's it's still not at the very top. But right. people are people are people are interested in ways that they never have been before. You know, you you're seeing to see at the major art fairs and in like Ani Elbers had another show recently. Like she's having a moment again for a while, and it's like, yeah. and no one knew who Ani Elbers was outside of the field for a very long time. And all of a sudden she's at the Tate and she's at the Guggenheim. And, she, and like, that's wonderful. That's hugely exciting and allows people to start to see this history that's been like the secret art history for half a century. Um, that's really, really powerful and really important. Um, so I do feel like the values are shifting. Okay. Like we're not, we're not there yet. It's still a marginalized field. Many people still don't understand it. Um, the more the more traditional folks don't, um, which is just the nature of things. I mean, there's still trying to get people to break their associations with like, oh, fabric, domestic, women's work, which are just like those associations are there, but they're fossil associations, and they're not even whole truths. Like, you know, like are you, embroidery, yes, women's work, we can absolutely talk about that, but you know, there's other textile practices that have always been industrial and all right. the genders have participated. It's, it's just, it's broader than that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's shifting. The landscape is shifting. It's not, there isn't like a, you can't assume that people speak your language when you walk into a room, um, but it's better than it was like hugely. Um, and I think we're only going to con consistently expand, but you know, the, the reasons for why textiles are marginal haven't gone away like it's marginal because of its association with you know, non-white folks and femininity and those associations devalue it today just as much as they did you know 30 years ago 40 years ago 50 years ago and yeah I don't, I don't see that changing you know we're not going to suddenly get rid of sexism and um, racism and homophobia that like that's I, if we do, if someone figures it out, great. But I don't see that happening tomorrow. So yeah. uh, I think the marginalization of the field is going to be there, which will continue to enable textiles to be a relevant political field at the same time. Cool. That's why I have hope. Yeah. That gives me a lot of hope. The kind of change I'm seeing, and especially with um, people younger than ourselves, I think that um, the next generation after us is much more interested in being inclusive and tolerant and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, we'll see as they grow up, but I think that I see that a lot more in them and the way they act in the way that they correct their parents and the way that they correct the their friends around them and, you know, being more just aware of that kind of stuff. 
and then having that spread through all of their experiences in their life. I think that's what gives me hope, the most hope. Mm. Yeah, they're like I, I think that's a it's really really true. Um, one of the things that I think many people who teach like we're we're around young people consistently, and I think it gives you so much hope for the future with what these generations are doing. Like, I mean, no, no, no generation is perfect, and like there are there are things that they do differently than we did. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's like, come on. Um, but they're so invested in inclusion and in uplifting one another and in dismantling a lot of the limitations that many of us who preceded them have just accepted that we can't dismantle. It's not that we don't think that they're like, need to be dismantled. We just like, this is just the way things are. We have to work within the system. and a lot of this generation is refusing to do that and trying to build a better world, which is the benefit of the world, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, with us who agree that it needs to be changed, you know, we, (laughs) as opposed to, you know, the generation before who's like, no, this is is institutionalized and this is what it's going to be and you just have to live with it. Now we can say, well, we agree and let's do something about it. You know, I I think the generation before us, there were probably as many of that generation um, who wanted to see change happen and it just didn't work out for them. That's they, true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's, um, the pathways are becoming more apparent to us than they were before, mm. which is yeah. really wonderful to see. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I think that's well, yeah, a, on a note of hope and positivity. Yeah, I think that's a good spot to end the interview. But that this was so much fun. I loved talking with you. <laughs> Thank you. This has been really fun. Appreciate it. Been so fun to do. It was really fun to talk through the academic perspective of textiles. Yeah, and I am super excited for the future of weaving after this conversation. Me too. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at ProWeaverPod.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. Bye! Bye.